Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who lived from 1806 to 1861 and who in Victorian times was a very famous and successful, much-loved poet. I know what you're thinking, isn't she the wife of Robert Browning, who was the real star of the show? Well, fight your prejudices, that's what I say, because that was not the case when they were both around, and he was very much the second poetic fiddle to Elizabeth. So let's get that out of the way early. Just to give you a hint of uh, biography, she was one of those kids. We see it so often with poets and writers, Samuel Johnson, uh, Alexander Pope. She was a prodigy and largely self-taught. So she just sat in her dad's library soaking stuff up. And by her early teens, she was reading all the classics in the original language, Latin, Greek, but also reading the Old Testament in Hebrew. So she was a brain. She also, during that period, read a lot of the more radical writers like um, Wollstonecraft and uh, Vindication of the Rights of Women, Tom Paine writing about the revolution in America, Rousseau, Voltaire, the great stars of the French Enlightenment. And uh, so she was pretty groovy in her teens. But then she got ill, and that thing happened that sometimes uh, occurs when people get ill, is there is a strange silver lining to it during which they spent all of their time writing, reading, writing, just learning their art because their physical pursuits are somewhat limited. You'll remember when we talked about Emily Dickinson, the American poet, that she got ill, stayed in her bedroom most of the time and just churned out poem after poem. I once worked with Galton and Simpson, the creators of uh, the Hancock shows, uh, Tony Hancock's very successful shows, and of Steptoe and Son. And they had met, I think, in a TB ward, and uh, they were confined to their hospital beds and just made up jokes and ideas for stories and so on. So there can be a plus to illness. I, yeah, that's the lesson of today's podcast. By the way, Emily Dickinson had a framed picture of Elizabeth Barrett Browning in her bedroom, which shows the level of her celebrity in the 19th century. So, okay, she brought out a book of poetry in 1844. It got great reviews. She became a famous poet. And then she got a fan letter from a guy called Robert Browning. At this point, she was still Elizabeth Barrett. And he said, and I quote, I love your verses with all my heart. And he said lots of other praising things. So they met up in 1845. You can guess it. They fell in love. 
Her father disapproved because he was a struggling playwright. This is Robert Browning was a struggling playwright and poet. And uh, Mr Barrett thought he was a bit of a loser. So they had to marry in secret. And then they went off to Italy to live partly for Elizabeth's health and partly to get away from the old man. Elizabeth um, was one of those creatives who used laudanum, which was an opium-based medicine for her pain. Coleridge, you may know, used it a lot. And some people think that was part of her poetic inspiration. Never quite sure about drugs as inspiration myself. People I know have really got into that kind of thing tend to create nothing but that's maybe just my narrow experience so she was six years older and unwell but they loved each other and uh, she wrote actually at that time I will get to the poem in a minute by the way she wrote a sonnet uh, she had a collection called sonnets from the Portuguese and she wrote a poem you may have heard of a sonnet how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It is, I know I use the term famous very guardedly on these podcasts because poetry isn't that famous generally, but that is a biggie. Check it out. And uh, there is a theory that she called them sonnets from the Portuguese to suggest they were translations, which they probably weren't. They were just worried, her and Robert, about the raw emotion um, which seemed to emanate from their relationship and they didn't really want to make that too clear. They avoided the personal, always a good idea in poetry. Discuss. Okay, so one of the things she got very interested in when she lived in Italy, unsurprisingly, was the cause for unification and, and Italian politics in general because, as I say, she was a pretty political person. I don't want to despoil us here, but she died age 55, Elizabeth, and died in Robert Browning's arms. And he said that her last word was beautiful, which is beautiful. What I'm going to talk about today is a poem called Mother and Poet by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It was published in 1862 after her death, published posthumously by Robert Browning in a collection called Last Poems. And uh, she probably wrote it in 1861. Now, it's based on a real person, we're told, but I'm never that interested in that and also you know when you get based on a true story in films I always think the word based is being used incredibly loosely probably so let's just look at it mother and poet is a dramatic monologue in that one character speaks and you can imagine them if you like on a stage doing this her and Robert both loved a dramatic monologue. Robert really made his name writing them. And in fact, I cover one of those in this series. So she died in Florence. And as I say, Italy was a very big part of her life. Mother and poet 
Well, let's just read the first stanza. There are 20 stanzas, so I am not doing them all, you'll be glad to hear, but you should check them out. And I'm always telling you to check stuff out, but that's why I'm here, really. First stanza. And remember, this is a dramatic monologue, so I have to read it a bit as if I was playing the part. Mother and poet. Here goes. Dead, one of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. Dead, both my boys. When you sit at the feast and are wanting a great song for Italy free, let none look at me. Okay, so this is the voice. At the moment, we don't know who's speaking, but as I say, the title of the poem is Mother and Poet. Dead. One of them shot by the sea in the east. So that dead exclamation mark, it's a, it's a caesura, which you uh, may have heard of. In other words, a sort of a cease, a pause in the line. Dead. One of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. So after that initial dead, which really hits you hard at the beginning, you get one of them shot by the sea in the east, a beautifully formed iambic pentameter. You'll remember that ten syllables, unstressed, stressed, although she messes about with it a bit in this first line. But if you take those ten syllables, one of them shot by the sea in the east, it's a perfect iambic pentameter. So, dead. One of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. So, dead and and are setting up these lines which are beautifully formed iambic pentameter, one of them shot by the sea in the east, one of them shot in the west by the sea. And that initial dead feels like it's going to be so ragged and fierce, this poem, but it then goes into beautifully balanced poetry. What's going on? Third line, dead, both my boys. Two, says Ura, dead, both my boys. It's, there's a battle going on here. Remember the title of the poem, Mother and Poet. And those two sides of the speaker seem to be battling it out. Dead. That's the angry, tragically upset mother. One of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. There you get the poet fighting with the grieved mother, dead, both my boys. When you sit at the feast and are wanting a great song for Italy free, let none look at me. So then we get enjambment, where the line is not the complete sentence. The sentence runs across the lines. When you sit at the feast, end of line, and wanting a great song for Italy free, end of line, let none look at me. 
there's rage in that. I think you can feel it there. So that's the first stanza. And as ever, with, I think, both Brownings, when they do a dramatic monologue, you're not sure what's happening at first, but it gets clearer and clearer. Second stanza. Yet I was a poetess only last year, and good at my art for a woman, men said. But this woman, this, who is agonised here, the East Sea and West Sea rhyme on in her head forever instead. One thing you might notice about both of these stanzas, and, and you will notice about all the stanzas in the poem, is this very short line at the end. In stanza one, let none look at me. And in stanza two, forever instead. They are closing lines to the stanzas. They're short, they're like half the length. They vary a bit between five, six, seven syllables, but they are distinctly shorter than the other lines. And they feel like a jarring element, like a line broken rather than ended. And I think it's Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I might call her EBB to save time. It's EBB trying to get across that this is not a woman speaking in poetry. This is a woman who is ripped up with rage and sadness. And so, as I said, there's a battle between the fact that she's a poet and a mother. Yet I was a poetess only last year. So then she was proud to be a poetess, simply a poetess. Nothing was getting in the way of that. And good at my art for a woman men said. Now that line is a beautiful drip feed of info, isn't it? And good at my art. Well, that sounds great. For a woman, oh, men said. Uh, of course they did, because that's what men do. So it's all in that line there. Good at my art. For a woman, men said. It's all slowly undermined by social attitudes her poetic skill, but we can feel it coming through this. But this woman, this who is agonised here. Now, this is where italics come in. Both thises are italicised. And it's a kind of a stage direction. You imagine her pointing at herself, but this woman, this poking herself in the chest, maybe slightly violently in her rage. This woman, this, who is agonised here, the East Sea and West Sea rhyme on in her head. That, again, a beautifully balanced line of poetry, and then forever instead. So listen how the poet and the mother battle it out. But this woman, this, who is agonised here, the East Sea and West Sea rhyme on in her head forever instead. That broken line at the end. Her poetic skills don't seem to be giving her any solace at all. She's sort of angry 
that she's got that rhyme in her head. She's angry that she created that one of them shot by the sea in the east, one of them shot in the west by the sea. But it's going on in her head. The east sea and west sea rhyme on in her head forever instead. So this furious mother can't fight her own poetic abilities. They continue. And I love that conflict. What a strange and wondrous idea to come up with. A bereaved mother who's also a poet and the two sides of her battling it out. Okay, I'm jumping to stanza five. To teach them, it stings here. I made them indeed. Speak plain the word country. I taught them, no doubt, that a country's a thing men should die for at need. I prated of liberty rights and about the tyrant cast out. So, what we're getting here is that the mother politicised her two sons. But let me just let you in on the punctuation here. To teach them dot, dot, dot. So she was about to go on then. To teach them dot, dot, dot. It stings there. So the idea of teaching them stops her in her tracks because it hurts so much. Another caesura, another stop. To teach them it stings there. Three consecutive stresses. So she sort of stops herself to teach them. It stings there. I made them indeed. Now, that's the end of the line, not the end of the sentence. And as we know, if we've ever listened to one of these podcasts before, enjambment, the idea of running a sentence across the end of the line, means you get two for the price of one. You get the meaning created by the end of the line and then the meaning created by the end of the sentence. So what she's actually saying is, I made them indeed speak plain the word country. But when we break the line at indeed, after indeed, we get, I made them indeed. So, of course, she did make them biologically, but also politically is what's coming across here. And I made them indeed, indeed. You can't help separating those. So I made them become activists. I made them be people who stood up for their beliefs. I made them indeed. And then the next line, speak plain the word country, full stop. I taught them, no doubt, that a country's a thing men should die for at need. So the line ends after doubt. I taught them, no doubt. But of course, what we're getting also is I taught them no doubt and this is the political fundamentalist if you like no doubt utter belief in the cause to the point we already know of dying for it if necessary so she punishes herself here and those End of lines, not end of sentences, are hammering that home. So again, her poetic skill, the speaker's poetic skill, 
the Motherland poet's poetic skill, tortures herself. I made them indeed. I taught them no doubt. So if we just read the sentence, I made them indeed speak plain the word contrary, so patriotism. I taught them no doubt that a country is a thing men should die for at need, at need as in when needed. She taught them that a country is a thing men should die for at need. And it sounds good in the abstract romantic idea, in the patriotic poetry setting. But I think the point is when it happens in real life, it's a different thing. And that ends that stanza. I prated of liberty, rights and about the tyrant cast out. That last short line, the tyrant cast out. But the word prated, I think, is the key here. To prate is sort of idle, foolish talk. I'm sure she didn't think that at the time when she talked of liberty and rights and about casting tyrants out. But now... Having lost two sons to the cause, that's how she views it. These boys both go on to fight for Italian unification. And then we get some specifics of that fight. Place names, etc. But it's about the unification of Italy, but it could be any fight for freedom. And I think it's important to remember that this is about the idea of actually dying for the cause and what that entails. I once had an argument on Terry Wogan's chat show with Quentin Tarantino and uh, Reservoir Dogs had just come out and I'd watched it pre-cinema release and he was talking about the very realistic way he handled death in the film. And I said, I don't think it is realistic. I said, uh, I think death is all about how it affects other people, about the terrible ripples that come from a death and affect others. You haven't even given these people names, I said, uh, Quentin. I said, uh, you know, Mr. Pink, Mr. Green, you've you've dehumanised them in order to kill them. He was uh, very uh, disagreeing with that point. But um, I think I won. Anyway, so this, I guess, is, is, a, is an aspect of this poem as well, that um, death doesn't just take someone away, it leaves behind a terrible aftermath. Okay, stanza eight. Then was triumph at Turin, and Kona was free, and someone came out of the cheers in the street with a face pale as stone to say something to me. My Guido was dead. I fell down at his feet while they cheered in the street. That could be a scene from a Tarantino film, I think. Triumph at Turin. Yes, a bit of alliteration. Was, then was Triumph at Turin and Kona was free. You don't have to look. You can look them up if you like. 
you know, their various victories of those fighting for the unification of Italy. And someone came out of the cheers in the street with a face pale as stone to say something to me. My Guido was dead. And there's that Cesura in the middle of the line. We, we stopped. I fell down at his feet. And that last short line, while they cheered in the street. Again, that feeling of a broken rhythm, a, a broken stanza. Here because of this terrible news. But you can it's so filmic that. You can see it, can't you? The celebrations. The crowd cheering. And someone came out of the cheers in the street with a face pale as stone to say something to me. My Guido was dead. I fell down at his feet while they cheered in the street. The difference between the mass celebration and this one woman's tragedy. Next stanza. I bore it. Friends soothed me. My grief looked sublime as the ransom of Italy. One boy remained, to be lent on and walked with, recalling the time when the first grew immortal, while both of us strained to the height he had gained. OK, I bore it. I took that terrible grief. Friends soothed me. And this incredible self-awareness and incredible honesty. My grief looked sublime as the ransom of Italy. So it looked kind of right. It looked poetic, if you like. It looked romantic. My grief looked sublime as the ransom of Italy. The price that Italy had to pay to get freedom, as as she sees it. I mean, it's, oh man, I bore it, friends soothed me, my grief looks sublime as the ransom of Italy. There's something so bitter and angry about that. I became a kind of a symbol of loss for the great cause. And she doesn't sound very happy about that. One boy remained, so she's got one son left, to be lent on and walked with. Now he supports her. Recalling the time when the first grew immortal, while both of us strained to the height he had gained. So they talk about the dead son, the dead brother. Talking about when he first grew immortal, when he, when he died, when he maybe attained some sort of fame as a fallen hero, while both of us strained to the height he had gained. So the death of her son keeps them both loyal to the cause to give it some sort of, to give that death some sort of meaning and, and purpose. So I suppose you could say that she continues to prate of liberty rights and about the tyrant cast out. At this point, she has to hold on to that or Guido's death becomes pointless. The other son is called Nanny. OK, we get uh, more of him in uh, stanza 11. My nanny would add he was safe 
underwear. This is in the letter from the front line from her other son, her surviving son. My nanny would add he was safe and aware of a presence that turned off the balls. Yes, cannonballs. Let's just establish that now. No giggling at the back. My nanny would add he was safe and aware of a presence that turned off the balls. Was impressed. It was Guido himself who knew what I could bear and how it was impossible quite dispossessed to live on for the rest. So Nanny writes to her and he says, I can feel something that stops the cannonballs from hitting me. I think it's Guido. My Nanny would add he was safe and aware of a presence that turned off the balls, was impressed it was Guido himself who knew what I could bear. So she speaks of herself. Now Guido would know. What can't she bear? And how it was impossible, quite dispossessed to live on for the rest. So if she loses Nanny as well, Guido, the dead Guido, knows that she just would not be able to bear that. It would be impossible, quite dispossessed. So if she lost possession of them both to live on for the rest and the rest could mean other people but I think it means the cause as well just give you that stanza again my nanny would add he was safe and aware of a presence that turned off the balls was impressed it was Guido himself who knew what I could bear and how it was impossible quite dispossessed to live on for the rest and then hard on that stanza 12, on which, without pause, up the telegraph line swept smoothly the next news from Gaeta, another scene of this war. On which, without pause, up the telegraph line swept smoothly the next news from Gaeta, shot. Tell his mother. Ah, ah, his, their mother. Not mine. No voice says my mother again to me. What? You think Guido forgot? And that is an incredibly confused stanza. There are dashes and inverted commas. There's all sorts of stuff going on. What does it mean? Let's just, I'll just read it again straight through. As she says, on which without pause up the telegraph line. So as soon as she allows herself to think that Guido is protecting Nanny, protecting her from losing both sons, immediately, and then into this stanza 12, on which without pause up the telegraph line swept smoothly the next news from Gaeta shot. Tell his mother, ah, ah, his, their mother, not mine, no voice says my mother again to me. What? You think Guido forgot? It, it, it's a fabulous piece of dramatic monologue because it almost ceases to feel like a poem and it feels like dialogue. On which, without pause, up the telegraph line swept smoothly the next news from Gaeta shot. That's the first two lines. So... She's only just accepted that Guido will look after his brother and look after her when that belief is destroyed. 
shot. So we know now that Nanny has got it, and that's the end of the line. And then it goes into this confusion, as you would expect from a mother receiving this news. Tell his mother, ah, ha, his, their mother, not mine. No voice says my mother again to me. What? You think Guido forgot. So let's pull this apart. Tell his mother, that's in italic. So shot, tell his mother is a quote from the telegram. Aha, his. Their mother. Her first thought is, as a poet, as a person who deals in language, it seems... Not his, it shouldn't be his, it should be their mother. She starts to argue about possessive pronouns, possessive determiners also, if you want to get grammatical about it. Ah, his, their mother, not mine. Now, what's going on? His, tell his mother, and she's correcting them, ah, his, their mother. So don't forget, I've got two boys, even though, one died for your cause. Don't dismiss him. Not mine. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that tell his mother means that Nanny is dead. Otherwise, it would be tell my mother. A message from her injured son. So when they say shot, they mean dead. And that's why there is no my mother for the speaker and then she goes on no voice says my mother again to me because she doesn't have a child anymore what you think Guido forgot I think at first the idea of Guido forgot you think oh yes when they said his instead of their they forgot Guido but I think what she's saying here is do you think that Guido forgot the protection thing that was keeping Nanny alive and keeping me only with one dead son. Now I have two. So let's hear that scrambled, panicked, confused stanza again, and hopefully it makes more sense. On which, without pause up the telegraph line, swept smoothly the next news from Gaeta. Shot. Tell his mother. Ah, uh-huh, his, their mother. Not mine. No voice says my mother again to me. What? You think Guido forgot? And it's Elizabeth Barrett Browning beautifully creating how it would be to receive that news. For a mother, shaken, thinking my mother, no voice says my mother again to me. That horror of that. But also the poet, this constant struggle between mother and poet, hence the title of the poem, Mother and Poet, is that she's quibbling about grammar as well. His, their, mine, my. As I say, she's looking at possessive pronouns and balancing them out. Okay, we'll cut to the last stanza. And when I read it, you'll think, oh, well, that not that the first stanza? There are differences which we'll discuss. Stanza 20, dead. One of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. Both, both my boys. If in keeping the feast you want a great song for your Italy free, 
let none look at me. Now let's just go back to the first stanza. Dead. One of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. Dead, both my boys. That is exactly the same as the last stanza. Here now the change comes. In the first stanza, she says, when you sit at the feast and are wanting a great song for Italy free, let none look at me. In the last, she says, if in keeping the feast you want a great song for your Italy free, let none look at me. So, what's the difference? Okay. I say it's, it's the same for two and a half lines. And then when you sit at the feast in the first stanza becomes if in keeping the feast in the last line. To me, when you sit at the feast sounds like the celebratory meal for some glorious victory for Italy free, as she says. If in keeping the feast sounds like the anniversary of that, if you're keeping the feast, it becomes a sort of feast day, not just a celebration meal. So when you sit at the feast, I think it's just happened, that victory, and they are feasting. If in keeping the feast, I think we're talking about keeping the feast day, the anniversary of that victory. So time has moved on. And she says in that first stanza, when you sit at the feast and are wanting a great song for Italy free, that becomes you want a great song for your Italy free. She has moved it away from herself. So and are wanting a great song for Italy free becomes you want a great song for your Italy free. She seems to have separated from the cause altogether. It's become someone else's great cause, someone else's feast day, someone else's celebration. Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century writer, said that no one ever lost an hour's sleep or ate an ounce less beef because of public affairs. In other words, that the great happenings that we see on the news every night don't affect us like our own personal, small, domestic happenings. Not so small in this poem, but our own personal things. And I think that's illustrated here. She was obviously a political poet. She taught these two boys to believe that it was right to die for the cause if necessary. She taught them how important the word country was. She taught them to fight for Italy. But when they actually died and she was left without them, now you want a great song for your Italy free. She has lost that fervour. It has been wiped away by grief. I'll give you that last stanza one more time. Dead, one of them shot by the sea in the east and one of them shot in the west by the sea. That balanced iambic pentameter again. Both, both my boys. If in keeping the feast you want a great song for your Italy free, let none look at me. 
So that is Mother and Poet by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's, um, I think it's pretty amazing. It's a great screenplay. It's, uh, it's so alive. And uh, like I say, I've only done some of the stanzas, but you can hear this woman feel her rage. Check it out. Also, check out Sonnets from the Portuguese, which are very beautiful by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And don't forget, when her and Robert were alive, she was the boss. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.